This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us are here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, back from my couple-week absence as my second son was born a couple weeks ago. And you've had Matt holding down the fort here with some great guests. But excited to be back. And joining me this evening is one of our favorite guests, probably at the top of the list in terms of appearances history, historically here at Saturday to Sunday, is Mr. Sigmund Bloom of Football Guys. Sigmund, welcome back to the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. It's good to be back. And it seems like every year there's a few more people or a few new layers to the whole Saturday to Sunday concept, right? Uh, everybody engaged in this endeavor of getting to know these players from their college careers and doing our best to project what we expect from them in the NFL or the range of outcomes at least. And uh, it continues to change. And what's great about our conversations that we have every year, Paul, me and you and, and Matt and all the other people in our circle is that there's always, um, well, there's two things. One is there's always new ways the NFL is tackling this. You know, like now it's the sensors in the shoulder pads, right? That we don't need 40 times anymore. That we have better information than 40 times, or at least the teams do. Um, and the other is it's always a conversation about how the game is evolving. It's always a conversation about team building. It's a conversation about fit. It's a conversation about team philosophies and how you win. And uh, that's what makes it always so stimulating. And now here we are, you know, just two weeks away from the draft. And this one, because of the quarterback decisions, Paul, might be one of the most compelling to project and argue or otherwise be there for the big reveal uh, as we see exactly what these teams are thinking. Yeah, and I mean, this year was already going to be one of the, the weirdest stress ever. No combine. So this right. is all about film analysis. And even the film analysis, it's so limited because some teams barely played this year. Some teams played one game, four right. games, five games. So it's such a unique year. We thought last year was unique, but last year we at least snuck in the combine. Mm -hmm. A couple pro days got in there. and we, But at least we had a full season of a film, and we had the combine to kind of – this year is more – uncharted territory than ever and then you talk about a draft that you're talking about maybe five quarterbacks in the first 10 to 15 picks mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. I, I think that would be at, at this point it would be surprising if we don't get five quarterbacks i think in the top 10 to 15 picks so this when you have that kind of star power in terms of the quarterbacks and then you add in three wide receivers maybe going in the top 10 top 12 as well it's a very exciting but a very interesting draft to discuss so you brought it up you mentioned the quarterbacks yeah. let's go there first because let, let's start with the expected number one pick in Trevor yeah. Lawrence. Do you view him and we've been, you've been watching Trevor Lawrence and everybody's been watching Trevor Lawrence forever. Do you put him near the top in terms of general outlook prior to going into the NFL with just about any of the quarterbacks that we've had just from a, checking off every single mm -hmm. characteristic and trait that you would want a quarterback to have the size, the arm talent, the athleticism, right. he's got it all. Is, do you, do you view him on that? Like some people are saying best quarterback prospect coming out of college into Andrew Locke. Do you feel that with, with Trevor Lawrence? Yeah, I think you see it too. Uh, Kyle Shanahan said about Kirk cousins when he was asked after San Francisco moved up and he said, well, that's not how you draw it up. Trevor Lawrence is how you draw it up. 
basically, right? Uh, you know, just his frame. Also, college experience. On a side note, on by the way, you know, some players opting out of twenty twenty. It doesn't seem like, at least for the top players, that it's really affected their draft stock at all. I barely even hear about it, honestly. The teams are going to be more nervous, at least about the top players. It makes me wonder about the future because players used to just opt out of bowl games. Uh, but maybe once you know your draft stock is locked into the top 10, why come back? Anyway, uh, Trevor Lawrence did come back uh, because of eligibility rules and didn't do anything to dispel the notion that he was the clear number one pick. And the other thing, Paul, I think, and it, it, you know, it's the frame. It's the athleticism. It's the arm talent. Uh, it's the experience on a big-time football stage. Uh, you know, certainly, the, there's not a lot of holes that you can punch in his profile. Uh, and then what that also gives us context for, Paul, is just how good the number two, three, four, maybe five, I don't know, it depends on how you rank them. But just how good those prospects are, right? Because that's why San Francisco is so eager to move up to number three, because the quarterback you get at number three is the kind of quarterback that could go number one overall in some drafts, right? You know, the decision that Atlanta has at number four, or the decision that teams like Denver or New England or Carolina, Washington, have about mortgaging the future to move up to get quarterback four or quarterback five in this class. So I love it, not just because we understand what these quarterbacks can do, but also which franchises are really sold on them and understand how rare it is to be able to get a quarterback like a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance without moving up to the first or second pick, which we know usually requires trading the majority of your draft capital for at least the next two years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and San Francisco we're going to get to them a little bit more, but I applaud them for making the bold move up because it was about 365 days ago that you and I spoke on one of the either pre-draft mm-hmm. or post-draft podcasts. And we were saying that San Francisco was the wild card for Aaron Rodgers. Now, nobody foresaw Aaron Rodgers having the year that he had. So Green Bay right. now just can't move in. They're, they're just locked. They would look foolish and stupid and there'd be no reason to do it. But we said back then San Francisco was looking to upgrade that we thought that they looked at what they had in the building and they thought they would ha- need to upgrade to maybe get over to that next level. And we said, maybe Aaron Rodgers, maybe things come full circle. They passed on him in the draft and all these years later, he ends up there. So I applaud them for making the move up and you're right. They didn't have to go all the way to the top to, to get their guy because it is such a quarterback heavy draft and there is so much unique talent, but to tie it back to Trevor Lawrence for one second, I think two yeah. things that I I'm really intrigued with to hear your thoughts is one, the Urban Meyer offense is something mm-hmm. that I'm excited to see what the Urban Meyer offense is for, for the NFL because so much college game in terms of scheme and schematics and play calling have been brought into the NFL. So I think that puts Trevor Lawrence already at a better place than maybe if it was the Doug Marone offense or a different type of coach and scheme that was there. And then I don't think people truly understand the type of athleticism. I think the hardcore college fans and who've been watching Trevor Lawrence closely, but the casual draft fans who maybe just kind of get into the draft, close to the draft, and then really follow it once they get to the NFL, I don't think they're aware of just how athletic he is Mm -hmm. and just how much he's going to add to uh, in fantasy football with his legs. 
in college, he just didn't need to because Clemson was just loaded with playmakers. So he didn't have to do much with his legs, but he showed some glimpses. And I think early in his NFL career, when he's still learning the process and the mental processing and decision-making and learning the NFL play speed, I think you're really going to see him utilize those legs more than I think people understand and realize. I don't think he's going to be Lamar Jackson running like 15, 18 times a game, but I think there's a lot of untapped upside there with his rushing that's going to either that's going to raise his ceiling even higher in terms of fantasy football. Absolutely. And I think the Urban Meyer conversation is a good one, if only because I don't know that we really, because it's the NFL and there's so much news and so much flying around, I don't know that we really stepped back and appreciated just how big of a move that was for the Jacksonville franchise to get Urban Meyer. You know, that's Shad Khan basically saying, I, after being an absentee owner, I'm going to step in and whether you, know, you have to look at the geographical connection here, because you think of Urban Meyer, you think of Tim Tebow, right? Uh, and what, what did Tim Tebow do with very limited passing ability as a fantasy football quarterback? Uh, but you know that Urban Meyer, why did he take the job? He took the job because of Trevor Lawrence. He took the job because, and it's, I th- by the way, Paul, I thought it was really fascinating that Urban Meyer basically admitted, he said something to the effect of one of the differences when you go to the NFL is you look over at the other sideline and they have the same as you, or maybe even better. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the con- again, the, there's the conversation in the background here about college coaches making the jump to the NFL. There's the conversation about the Jacksonville franchise and whether they can really change things. Daryl Bevel's name comes up here. But absolutely, Lawrence is a tremendous athlete and a rugged player, uh, mentally tough, physically tough. Uh, you know, there's, there's just a lot that you really like. Um, if, if there's a knock on Lawrence or if you watch him and there's something he leaves you wanting a little bit more of is maybe – um, a little more of a deliberate process. It's not bad to play with urgency. And his system sets him up so that uh, Matt Waldman and I were talking about this on my show yesterday, where you, you want the quarterback to be able to always convert all of those easy throws or make the right decision. You know, we could talk about Trey Lance and, and the system that reads from short to long, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah, Lawrence is going to be a very tough quarterback to prepare for. Uh, you're going to see, I'm excited to see what he does for DJ Chark, for LaVisca Chenault, Marvin Jones, who does have that experience with Daryl Bevel, and I think is going to be an excellent resource for the team on and off the field for those young receivers. So it's exciting. It's exciting to be a Jacksonville fan. It's exciting to think about the future with this team. And then as we look at some of the other quarterbacks, you know, we can rate our level of excitement when they, when we find out where they land, maybe some more than others, but just that Jacksonville Meyer Lawrence storyline is enough to keep you occupied for a long time. Yeah. I mean, we would have been excited wherever Trevor Lawrence went. Then you add in the dynamic element of Urban Meyer and a new coach, a guy that was one of the most successful collegiate coaches of all time with this great scheme. And it's like a marriage of the two. And I I never heard that line about across the way. And I think that line itself, I think is why for all the years of all the flirtations for Nick Saban to go back, 
Why? Why would he go back? On his side, it's always they're always superior, yeah. almost 99.9% in the games. And it's the same reason college basketball, Coach K never left, right? It's the same mindset that like they're at such an advantage at the collegiate game, and these guys love winning. They're obsessed with winning. Why? You know, very few go on to be successful. There's been a few, you know, here or there, but I think, you know, it was such a great quote that I never heard before. So I'm glad you brought that up. Let's let's take this to where I think the fun really starts, and that's mm-hmm. after Trevor Lawrence, because you can poll X amount of people, and some people are going to say Justin Fields, and some people are going to say Trey Lance, and a lot of people are going to say Zach Wilson, and maybe there's somebody out there, and maybe it's Kyle Shanahan and the 49ers are going to yeah. say Mac Jones. Where do you sit in terms of is there one from that next group that gets you most excited after Trevor Lawrence? I think it's Trey Lance for me, for me. Um, and again, I'll cite Matt Qualman. It took like what 12 minutes into the show. And I've already said his name twice. He brought up the, the <laughs> he's coming, Lance. he's coming on next week. So we're of excited. Course. Yeah. He's always with us, you know, um, he brought up this name, Steve McNair in connection to Trey Lance. And I love that. I love that because of the idea of competitive toughness, you know, and that's what Trey Lance shows in all the aspects of his game. And there's a level of competition question here, right? No level of competition question about Lawrence, no level of competition question about fields, none about Jones, but you do wonder about the ideal surroundings he had the teammates, the supporting cast, but not level of competition. Lance would have the most obvious level of competition questions, but that's mitigated by the kinds of things he was asked to do. And it kind of reminds me of Josh Allen. You know, we were some of the few that liked Josh Allen, right? And Wyoming. I mean, I guess it's a step up from North Dakota State, but not a big step up. But you saw Josh Allen executing a lot of play action fakes, turning his back to the defense. You saw Josh Allen able to do things that are NFL-type things mentally, even though maybe his accuracy was erratic. And I think with Trey Lance, you see a lot of the same things in terms of his command of the offense. So you would grade him highly there. You grade him highly as he's... What I like about Trey Lance, he looks very comfortable maneuvering in the pocket and making throws with bodies around him. Uh, He's incredibly tough as a runner. I mean, he really does turn into a running back as a runner. Even his pad level sometimes looks like a running back when he's a runner. Physically, much like uh, much like Lawrence, I mean, it's, it's everything you would want. I mean, that's why, again, we're all, what, what is really the key, Paul, as we look forward to the draft? We're trying to psychoanalyze Kyle Shanahan, right? We're trying to say, well, what is Kyle Shanahan going to do with that number three pick? And he said, how you draw it up? Well, Trey Lance is the closest to how you draw it up with the guys that he's going to actually have a chance to take. Um, I think Justin Fields, in terms of the pieces, of the traits, is pretty close. I don't necessarily see it integrating the way it does with Lance's game. Um, we can talk about Zach Wilson. You know, Zach Wilson maybe puts together some of the best highlights, and Zach Wilson uh, fits into that Patrick Mahomes paradigm. And then there's Mac Jones, which is one of the least interesting to talk about, but because now Matt Mayoko, so now we're getting down to the beat writer level. It's not just Adam Schefter. It's not just Daniel Jeremiah. Matt Mayoko, who's been covering the 49ers for as long as I can remember and has, has insight into where the team is headed. He said he believes that's the player Kyle Shanahan traded up for. Not that that's necessarily who he's going to take, but that's who he had in mind. 
so I, I can't remember, Paul, a more interesting question to drive the suspense of the top five. But if it was me, it would be Lance, and it would be Lance if I was making the pick for the Jets. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I love Trey Lance. I, I like the Steve McNair comparison. Have not heard that before, but I think, I think it's an apt comparison. You know, I've, I've talked before that a lot of the things that I liked about Josh Allen is why I like Trey Lance. The mm-hmm. intrigue, I understand, you know, not playing this year, leave some question marks, the lack of experience. But again, when you're talking about just the traits, right? Which is, why we like Josh Allen, right? You got to really be able to separate production sometimes at the college level to the traits, right? Because we know these guys are not playing on an apples to apples comparison. And it's why we like Josh Allen. We soared things that would translate to the NFL level. I feel the same way with Trey Lance and the intrigue of whether or not the 49ers pivoted to him or he sat behind Matt Ryan for a year and then stepped into an offense that, you know, had Julio Jones for another year or two and, and Calvin Ridley. Those are really intriguing to me in terms of just NFL level and then in terms of the fantasy landscape as well. So it, it really does make for a fascinating thing. I think Trey, Le- Trey Lance warrants going really high. I think he has all the skill set that you would want to have in a quarterback. And if he played somewhere else, I think, you know, he'd be right there at, at the top of people's rankings, you yeah. know, and you brought him up, you brought him up there and we'll get to Justin Fields in a second, sure. but, but let's, let's pivot right here. Cause we're, we were on the 49ers topic. The Mac Jones thing is so fascinating to me because if that was the guy he wanted, right. I just, I struggle to think why he thought, he needed to go up as high as he did, right? The Eagles right. obviously wanted to go down. So if the Eagles were willing to go down, why not just make a move with the right. Eagles directly? And you right. could have done it for one less first round pick. So then it would have been like, okay, like I still wouldn't have been all about that move. But if you're telling me they went to six, a few quarterbacks are off the board, more than just the top two. And you give up one guy, I said, I can, I can get behind it. But where is there, where was there any thought that they had to go all the way to three? I know there was some writing on the, you know, writing on the walls that maybe Carolina liked Mac Jones, right? They had him at the senior bowl, I think. So I could understand wanting, if he was really your guy, I could understand maybe leapfrogging Carolina, but to go all in like they did. To me, like you're basically saying you probably have him as your second quarterback on your board and you know Lawrence is going one and you feel pretty confident that, you know, that the Jets are, are, you know, zoned in on, on Wilson. So it's, it's really, it's a fascinating thing to go all the way up. You, you listen and you read what he said. And he once upon a time said that that was his style of quarterback, the Kirk Cousins of the world. And, but then like other times he's like, that's changed. And then you thought that playing with Kyler in the same division as Kyler Murray, the same division as Russell Wilson and seeing firsthand losing to Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl the way he did and seeing Mahomes make plays down the stretch of that game when his quarterback, who was more of a traditional pocket guy in Garoppolo, it would be weird for him to not envision that that's the, where the NFL is going. Look around the league. When's the last time we had a traditional pocket passing quarterback come in and be successful. And maybe there were other factors that led to Dwayne Haskins and Josh Rosen not being successful. I get it. 
but we don't really have many. I mean, Jared Stidham fell to where he fell because there were some question marks, but he just wasn't a guy that made plays with his legs and didn't play off structure. And, and now they're going potentially with Mac Jones, who played in the picturesque offense of Alabama behind a wall of men who barely right. got him touched behind with skilled wide receivers two who are going to go in the top 10 or top 12. You know, I look at Mac Jones and it, I, I hate to make it sound like I'm knocking him. I think he's a functional starter. I think he could be somewhere right. on the Andy Dalton, the Kirk Cousins exactly. spectrum. I just, I just have a really hard time thinking that that warrants the third pick in the draft with a massive trade up. And mm-hmm. is there any scenario where you can see if we, if we tie this to fantasy for one second, right. is there any scenario where you can see having Mac Jones ahead of any of the no. other four guys? No, 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 not even close, not even close. I mean, it's, we're looking at uh, Jimmy Garoppolo again. I mean, we're looking at a limited quarterback and I'm not going to say it's impossible that Kyle Shanahan's going to take Mac Jones because like you said, there's a type, you know, I was watching these quarterbacks with my wife who loves, uh, you know, studying this stuff with me and, and knowing what's, at stake in the draft and she's more of a behaviorist and she says people have patterns people have types they have and that you know we can go back to washington where mike and kyle wanted cousins and got him in the fourth round and snyder wanted robert griffin the third now robert griffin the third the lesson might be well look at how easy it was for washington i mean other than pierre garcon paul and you're an nfc east guy other than pierre garcon named one receiver that played for that 2012 washington team yeah, I couldn't remember. It's, it was Josh Morgan starting. Uh, Leonard Hankerson was the number three. Oh, Santana Moss was there, but it was a late career Santana Moss. And Aldrick Robinson was their deep threat. Fred Davis was their tight end. Al- Alfred Morris was the running back, rookie Alfred Morris. And they had a really tough offense with a rookie quarterback, Robert Griffin III, who obviously was limited in some ways. And they were an extremely tough offense to defend. So does he get the lesson that when you have that mobility when you have that run threat chunk plays as a runner and add that dimension then that's checkmate or does he look at the durability now jimmy garoppolo has also been getting hurt and he's a pocket quarterback this is where the psychoanalysis comes in but i'm not saying kyle shanahan it's impossible that he did that but i think we will all collectively you know do the spit take if it is Mac Jones, because as you said, it's just when there's this much agreement across draft big boards and draft analysts that nobody has Mac Jones as a top three or four quarterback in this class, it would be except for Kyle Shanahan. So yeah. either way, it's going to give us great fodder. And look, the Jets decision gives us great fodder because we're and it's another Shanahan system, right? And that's another reason why a lot of people are penciling in Zach Wilson as number two, because they expect that Kyle Shanahan would have a pretty good insight into who number two is going to be. Uh, and then Atlanta's decision is interesting. Again, the, the teams, whether they decide to trade up Detroit's decision is really interesting. If one of these quarterbacks, other than Mac Jones, because that's the thing, like if you're Detroit, if you're Carolina, because Carolina as an organization has made similar comments, but you know, we want athleticism. We saw what Teddy Bridgewater can do. We want more. We saw what Jimmy Garoppolo can do. We want more. Um, you know, it's, that's why everybody has Mac Jones going to New England. And if and if we're trying to put up, figure out why they would put up this smoke screen, and it sure does seem like it's consistent with the smoke screen in the sense that it was so uniform and so immediate, right? Like they made the trade, and everybody all of a sudden is saying, "Oh, well, it's, I think it's Mac Jones," or "Don't be surprised if it's Mac Jones," or "Don't count out Mac Jones." One angle could be to induce the Patriots to trade up for Mac Jones, uh, or to, to 
to trade, I'm sorry, to trade for Jimmy Garoppolo because they think that Mac Jones won't be available for them to trade up for or won't be available for the number 15. Another interesting thought is uh, Kyle Shanahan said something like, there's three quarterbacks and maybe potentially four or five at this party. Like, there's three that we feel good about and it may be four or five, which is kind of consistent with going to the uh, Justin Fields pro day like we just had and Trey Lance's second pro day is coming up. And maybe they're not 100% convinced that the Jets are certain of their pick. And they don't want to tip off who they would take at number three because then the Jets, who are going to run the same system, might say, well, wait a second. Maybe we should rethink this. Because if Kyle wants Fields or wants Lance, then why don't we? Why are we so convinced that it's Zach Wilson? And, you know, uh, you said Matt Walpin's coming on, and I think Matt is going to be a really strong voice saying maybe Wilson shouldn't be the answer. I think that's an interesting thing, too. You know, we jump right over the Jets, but this is a franchise that has been in purgatory forever. You know, they they look like they hit and then they missed with Sanchez. It doesn't really look like they hit, but then they missed with Darnold. They're going back to the well again. And I think that, you know, Matt Waldman's not the only one by far to say maybe you have more concern about Wilson than you do about the others. And again, that's why this is so fascinating. Whatever your valuations say, when we find out who these quarterbacks are getting married to that starts an entirely different conversation. And one, Paul, I think people are more tuned into this now that sometimes it can just be, where did you land? Right? Like Sam Darnold. Let's see what he does in Carolina with Joe Brady. Oh my, how different is it going to be going from Adam Gase to Joe Brady? Right? Um, How, how much does it matter that a offensive coordinator meets a quarterback halfway? in their career arc. Uh, and that's why it's going to be so fascinating to see who these quarterbacks are married to in terms of setting them up for success or, you know, in the case of someone like Adam Gase, setting them up for failure. Yeah. I mean, it, it's such a, it's such a fascinating and elaborate discussion because like you, you brought up there, Zach Wilson and I like Zach Wilson and we did a full one hour episode, you know, couple months ago on Zach Wilson, a full deep dive where Matt and I basically watched any and all film that we can get on him because when I when I watched him in the beginning of the year I had some reservations that he sh- was the interesting prospect but more of a late round one to mid round two guy I went back and watched the second half of the season I liked him a little bit more but I still and I I understood in a norm quarterbacks get pushed up the board right we see it every single year so I understood that he was going in the top 10 or top 15 I still couldn't get behind though him going over Justin Fields and, you know, some of these other guys, because I do think there's some processing issues there. I do think the level of competition is substantially less and I have a hard time. Yeah. He does some really exciting things. I, I said, I comped him on, on his best moments. I still don't see the Aaron Rodgers or Patrick Mahomes. Right. I said on his, on, I, I said, I said in terms of arm talent, the releases, you know, I saw some Tony Romo in him, which is a, sure. which is a strong compliment. Like, you know, Tony Romo is a very underappreciated, very good quarterback that just, you know, couldn't get the job done, you know, in the playoffs. And maybe it's on him. Maybe it was a team combination of both, you know? So if he's Tony Romo, the Jets are probably going to be pretty happy, but at the same time, like it wasn't consistently there, right? There, There's things that leave you for pause. And then he universally kind of became the second guy in terms of what it sounded like in terms of yeah. the NFL eyes. And that's where I thought it was really weird because I have a hard time watching the film on Justin Fields 
and Zach Wilson. And, and again, NFL gets so much more access than, than we do, you know, but you watch and you're like, okay, well, what did Zach Wilson do substantially better than Justin Fields? And I'm not, from my perspective, I don't see it. Right. So right. It, maybe it's internally, maybe it's the whiteboard, maybe it's answering questions. Maybe it's something that, you know, we just don't know talking to their collegiate coaches and getting a vibe that, you know, about work ethic and stuff like that, who knows, you know, but on the film that we have access to, it's hard to, to really find those spots where you're like, okay, like, I clearly see him being the better guy. And before we move on to running backs, a- yeah. any thoughts on Justin Fields? Because sure. what I keep coming back to with Justin Fields is the same thing I came back to with Deshaun Watson. Those the the Deshaun Watson games against Alabama back to back, right? In those national championship games made me believe that he was legit, even though people were were poking and prodding in terms of finding flaws on the football field of Deshaun Watson. And then the Bears passed him and you know and other things, you know, happened where he went. I watched that game and I I went back recently and watched that game, you know, the the Alabama, uh, I'm sorry, the Clemson versus Ohio State game. And that's the game that I'm like, I know there's development there. I know there's issues that Justin Fields has to improve upon. But when I watch that game, I, I just watch a guy who I think he's going to find a way. This is the, yeah. the, the toughness that he displayed in that game to continue playing after he was hurt. The clutch throws made me think he has it in him to, to do what we want. And I've been saying, I like Trey Lance a lot. I like Zach Wilson. To me, I think there's a gap after Trevor Lawrence to Justin Fields, but then another gap from Justin Fields down to the other guys. He would be my pick if I was running the Jets organization. So I'm interested to hear some quick yeah. thoughts on Justin Fields. Sure. And I think you're right that that Clemson game, how could you watch that Clemson game and have him anywhere but number two? And I think that that is a game that absolutely highlights the traits. Uh, and you also have the toughness, right? So if we were going to do a Wilson fields comparison because you brought it up like what what can wilson do better than fields the one thing i would say at this point is that wilson is extremely comfortable attacking as a passer inside or outside of structure he wants to beat you by passing and i think that that's something that really excites the nfl they want they want these guys to be passers first I think that Justin Fields can make plays outside of structure as a passer, but when I've watched him, I don't see someone that's comfortable. I don't see someone that's thinking pass, uh, like you know, take the tank all the way to E, stay behind line of scrimmage maneuver. Um, now, the question becomes with Wilson is whether these things will translate. And I think, uh, as Matt Baldwin brings up, um, he, you can survive like that, not just survive, thrive at BYU behind that offensive line against those opponents in the NFL, how much of that part of his game is going to be able to breathe Uh, where with fields, you understand, I mean, the way that he can push the ball down the field to the second and and third level of the defense. um, He plays well within structure. He's maybe a little bit uh, more of a, uh, a deliberate thinker in the pocket. You know, maybe you want to tighten and end up like a quarter beat or a half beat. But yeah, the toughness, and I think you're right to bring up the toughness too because Zach Wilson is also a great athlete. He's also very athletic. But with his build, you wonder if he can handle NFL punishment if he's putting himself out there. And because of that fearlessness he has outside the pocket, that may be a downfall 
for him where with Justin Fields you saw him take a hit and he obviously was hurt you know he was injured in that game and he didn't just play through the injury he led his team against a very 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 good team and look Lance Fields even Wilson to an extent you if your team takes that quarterback you should be really excited you should be really excited to watch what your franchise is going to do Mac Jones you know Paul I didn't necessarily see a first round pick when I saw Mac Jones Andy Dalton went early in the second round, right? And that's about where I... The problem is, and you bring up Andy Dalton, I think it's a wonderful comparison for Mac Jones because what I saw about Mac Jones is when the play doesn't work, when he has to get out of the progression, he surrenders, or at least you hope he surrenders. Again, Andy Dalton, right? The better outcome here is throw it away, don't take a sack, don't try to be a hero. And in the NFL, those plays are the plays that tilt games. It may not be how you draw it up in terms of what you expect your quarterback to have to do. And I just think that a quarterback that can't give you anything positive outside of structure is not a quarterback worth trading up for. It circles all the way back around to that question. Uh, But again, we'll have plenty of time on draft night to talk about these things as they unfold because there are other positions. There are other players. There's lots to be interested in in this draft. Yeah, for sure. And and one final thought, because it, it just yeah. popped in my head. What's so crazy about Mac Jones is it's not even like the NFL can look at him and say he could overcompensate for that lack of athleticism and mobility because he has a cannon, because right. he's Drew Bledsoe. You know what I mean? Right. Like that that mindset and that mold has been there's not been a lot of guys like Drew Bledsoe in, in quite some time, but like, he's not even like a, almost like a unicorn in terms of recently that like, okay, he doesn't have that athleticism, but man, he has a rifle. He can make up for it by standing tall in the pocket and waiting and waiting and then rifle off like, you know, a fastball that can get anywhere he needs it to. So you're talking about average arm talent with no, with a lack of mobility and athleticism. That's not what the NFL has been lately. So like, it's just so fascinating. It's going to be interesting to see, I don't know really. You brought up a good point, and it was the first time I heard people say that maybe there's still some smoke screening going on where I was under the belief like, yeah, why are they smoke screening? Do they really need to? But maybe there's some out there that they still see the benefit of potentially some type of smoke screen. Well, It'll be fun to find out. Let me interject, Paul, because John Lynch, because I said, because Atlanta's going to all the quarterback pro days, and I said teams don't waste resources on a smoke screen going to pro days. And apparently John Lynch did say that he went to the Patrick Mahomes pro day as a smokescreen because they already knew they were in on Solomon Thomas but he said that he went to the pro day and then called Kyle Shanahan and said maybe we need to rethink this because Patrick (laughs) Mahomes put on a show of course I think everybody's gonna have a how we almost drafted Patrick Mahomes story yeah, I mean, I, I live it every day because Ben McAdoo (laughs) while while a disaster with the Giants besides that one year the all the all the news reports you know, for the local beat writers for the Giants, where that Ben McAdoo was absolutely obsessed with Mahomes. He went to his pro day. He worked him out. He wanted to move on from Eli sooner than anybody in that franchise, which maybe was Ben McAdoo's best decision that he saw the writing on the wall there at the end of Eli's career. And he wanted them to be aggressive to move up and they didn't, right? And Kansas City did. And who knows? Ben McAdoo might look like a genius still coaching the Giants if they listened to his (laughs) advice to go, you know, go get, you know, Patrick Mahomes because he was infatuated with him as well. So it, it landing spot, as you talked about, one decision here or there changes a franchise for, you know, for decades. It, mm-hmm. it truly does. So let's spin this to the running back conversation. And let me ask the first question like this. Take who's on the depth. Take 
who's on the team out of the picture right. for a second. Travis Ethan, Najee Harris, where would you lean in terms of who you'd want to be your lead guy in a backfield? And do you believe whoever you would want in terms of real football is also who you would prefer without knowing landing spots in fantasy right now? Or do you think it's interchangeable and and fantasy could depend entirely on where they end up? I, I wouldn't say they're interchangeable. I think that with Harris, you just have a much higher floor as a pro. There's no scenario where Harris is a bust, right? There's no scenario where we look at what Harris did and say, well, this wasn't going to translate because, you know, physically he's everything that you want uh, as far as all the aspects of his game. And that includes being uh, scheme diverse. I think that's one of the things that we have to look at running backs too, because, uh, there are lots of running backs that we say, well, if they just were in you know, a, this kind of running game with this kind of offensive line, then they could maximize their talents. You don't have to say that with Harris. You know, He's a powerful runner. He's an athletic runner. He's a patient runner. Um, he's going to play all three downs. And I think now I can see a scenario where landing spot could flip the two. But I could also see a scenario, Paul, where Travis Etienne isn't even our number two running back in fantasy drafts after the draft. Uh, and I think with ETN, you know, he's just more of a home run hitter. He's maybe, again, not the most patient back, not the most efficient back at making decisions. Because that's one of the things we're always doing, right? Saturday to Sunday. I love it. I mean, I just love the crystallized concept. Because one of the things we're doing is, and I was talking about this with Matt Waldman, that we're looking at, okay, you're processing visual information. This is Matt, your sidekick, Matt. I mean, he, he gave me this paradigm, right? The problem solver paradigm, right? You're processing this visual information and you have this range of choices available to you. Which choice do you make? And in some ways, more than traits and athleticism, um, that is going to be a determinant, determining factor in the success of a player in college. And I think with Harris, we have no questions about that. With ETN, he's not the most patient or the most nuanced decision maker with the ball in his hands, but you certainly saw him come along wonderfully as a receiver in this past year. And you understand why that the home run ability, that speed is why he probably will be the second running back off the board, Paul. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's a bigger gap between Harris and ETN than there is between ETN and running back three, running back four, uh, maybe even running back five. Yeah, I mean, I'm right there with you. Najee Harris is my RB1, and I do think it's because he's a three-down guy. He's a he's a true three-down running back where he's really good in pass protection. He's a physical guy who can run inside and outside. He's got the athleticism if he gets to the second level that he can take it to distance and not get caught from behind. That's not his calling card or anything. But the thing is, I think it's because his body type. People are not giving him the credit as a receiver that he should be getting. He is not a average or above average receiver. He is a very good to great receiver who just happens to have a different frame than the great receivers out of the backfield that we've been accustomed to over the X amount of years coming out of the draft. And there's a, there's some, you know, resources out there that I really respect them, but I feel like there's this narrative that People have turned Travis Etienne into Christian McCaffrey or Saquon Barkley in terms of coming out of the backfield. Like I've seen, I've seen hyperbola like best receiving back, 
you know, in, in a decade. And I, I'm just not sure where they're getting that from. You know, a year and a half ago, this was a guy who readily admitted he's not comfortable catching passes out of a backfield. You don't, you don't put that in print, his words. And a year and a half later, I can, I don't see a scenario where he's one of the best backs in the last decade in terms of pass catching. He, like you mentioned, he has shown strides. He's now serviceable as a pass catcher, and he's obviously got elite athleticism and stop-start acceleration, so you put him in space. But I think he's going to be more of a check-down guy, run screens. You watch Najee Harris's pass catching ability, you see legitimate route running at times on some of the wheel routes and stuff that he does. So I think there's more of a gap there in terms of their pass catching ability. And I, I do think you bring up a point that there could be other guys that jump into the mix. So let me open it up to this. Yeah. The next tier of running backs, Javante Williams, Michael Carter, Trey Sermon, Kenneth mm-hmm. Gainwell, those seem to be the names. Maybe some people still have Chuba Hubbard up there, but I think in the NFL eyes, yeah. he's fallen a little bit. Is there one or two from that group that you're most intrigued with that if somebody does, you know, catch Travis Etienne in your eyes, it could be this player? I know Javante Williams seems to be the guy being talked about most, and people are connecting some dots that maybe Atlanta, top of round two, Mm -hmm. that could really move the needle a little bit in fantasy. But is there one or two from that next year that you're most intrigued with? And you're right to bring up a situation like Atlanta, Pittsburgh, um, the Jets. Uh, Miami, you know, these are situations that might elevate backs, but I think that's going to get us off the track of finding the best picks because two or three years from now, the situation a player is drafted into isn't as important as what they've made for themselves through their ability. Um, so Williams and Carter, I mean, it's kind of neat the way that they were this excellent committee. And I think it kind of simulates what they're going to see in the NFL. So I just, I don't see, Javante Williams or Michael Carter getting the kind of opportunity that Harris is going to get in terms of volume. Uh, I, I think that they'll both be really good committee backs. They'll be, and this is where the, it's all headed, right? This is why one of the prop bets out there, isn't it amazing, Paul, that we have prop bets on the draft? <laughs> Just because every other kind of bet you can make is based on the outcome of a sporting event. This isn't a sporting event. This is a fantasy draft. This is human beings' decisions, not what happens in this chaotic setting in the midst of a game, and yet we can bet on it. One of the bets is, will there be a running back in the first round, basically, over or under half of a running back taken in the first round? It's a a tough proposition, honestly. I can't, I I mean, that is hard. Um, And I think it's because teams see, and I think they're seeing this at the wide receiver position too. And like I said at the top of the show, being the football deep thinkers that we are. Uh-huh. Um, it, it really does, as you track each cycle, give you hints, right? Because the wide receiver position this year in free agency, with the exception of your Giants, uh, was pretty quiet. You know, no, in the Patriots, but that's diff- that's a whole different story. I saw Jason. I, I, I like to mention this because it's fun to dunk on Bit Belichick when we can. And certainly, what was the thing that just came out that he uh, preferred Keel Harry to AJ Brown? Um, <laughs> And, and there was another name, and it was Belichick really kind of overriding the team's scouts uh, on that decision. But also, uh, Jason Fitzgerald from uh, Over the Cap, who does tremendous work, compared Belichick signing um, Nelson Aguilar to that contract, like uh, Mike Ditka trading away his draft so he could golf. You know. Uh, anyway, my point in bringing all this up is that wide receiver is not a position that NFL is rushing to spend a lot of money on. And I think it's becoming a more specialized position, a more segmented position, just like running back. Uh, and I think that's why teams are going to 
I won't be surprised if one of these running backs falls out and Harris and ETN, or if both of them fall out and teams say, I'll be just fine with what I get in the second round. Um, Sermon's the most interesting, and I don't want to steal any Matt Waldman's thunder because he really should be the one that is uh, up at the pulpit, if you will, uh, giving the sermon. But you see a lot of the qualities in Sermon that you see in Harris in terms of that physical presence. I mean, Sermon is just a hoss out there. And Sermon is not a, he is not a sluggish back. You know, um, he makes very subtle, nuanced moves in the open field that are very efficient. You don't, you would never say Trey Sermon is elusive, right? I mean, just not the body type, it's not the style of running, but yet he eludes players in the open field. He's a functional receiver, at least a functional receiver. And while we're gushing about, you know, Justin Fields against Clemson, what did Sermon do? down the stretch, a player rising to the occasion and really putting his team uh, on his back against Northwestern. So that's the other thing you will love to see in a running back. Um, and like you said, you know, I, I think that um, Hubbard has fallen off. I think that Gainwell has a more limited application. You just look down these this whole class of running backs, Paul, and you just see more limited application. Guys, this isn't like last year when there were five guys at the top of the running back class. We'd say any one of these five guys translates as a potential bell cow as a foundational back in an offense so i think that uh you know this is just isn't that class uh but at the same time there's a lot going to be a lot of nfl contributors and there's some exciting players like you know khalil herbert is exciting uh hawkins out of louisville is exciting in the sense that they can add an element to an offense an explosive element to an offense a playmaking element to an offense but harris seems to be head and shoulders above everybody uh in terms of that classic bell cow that's becoming more of an endangered species in the NFL. Yeah, and I, I think bringing up Sermon is very interesting because if you put Sermon's best tape out there, he's on a level of a Najee Harris, right? He's not going to go where Najee Harris yeah. is because then there's been some other tape that wasn't so great. And I remember liking him two summers ago right, when he was at Oklahoma, and then that year kind of just went sideways, and then he picked Ohio State, and it sounded like he was going to be behind Master Teague, who's a guy who's really a hot name in the Debbie community that's that's kind of fallen off a little bit. And then most of the year, it was kind of a ho-hum year for Trey Sermon until down the stretch. And then all of a sudden, that guy that I remember being really high on two years prior, you know, all of a sudden, you know, really dominated down the stretch. So I think he's probably the guy, but like even him, there's a level of excitement with him, but it's not the level where I felt last year with those group of guys. Right. Yeah. And I feel the same way with Javante Williams. Right. I think Javante Williams, I think Trey Sermon to me could, if you tell me they can have good Chris Carson, like NFL careers, mm -hmm. I buy it. Javante Williams might have a little bit more athleticism than the Chris Carson type, but that's to me, some people love Javante Williams. They might, you know, they might put him on the spectrum of Chris Carson, the low end, Nick Chubb, the high end. I don't see that level of Nick Chubb talent with Javante Williams. He doesn't have that explosion that I think made Nick Chubb, you know, such a unique prospect. But that level of play where they could be maybe a more of a bell cow guy based on their body type. But Trey Sermon is probably the one that 
closest fits that bill if he's the guy that we serve down the stretch. So it's going to be interesting because I think day two can go a variety of ways. You just mm-hmm. want a committee guy. It, it might be Michael Carter. You want the guy who could be, you know, more of a, a Antonio Gibson type player. You're gonna, probably going to take Kenneth Gainwell, right? And he's going to be that offensive weapon for you. But if you want the sustainer back, you're probably looking Javante Williams or Trey Sermon in particular. So it's going to be really interesting to kind of see how the running backs fold. It's not nearly depth-wise, as strong of a class as we obviously saw last year. And I do, and this is going to be a conversation that I think I want to talk to you about post-draft when you come back on like usual. You do wonder if we're going to get to a place with so many second running back contracts turning into an outright disaster. Yeah. We've talked so long about the fifth year, right, for quarterbacks at the end of round one. I'm starting to wonder if you're going to see at some point in the near future – Teams that are looking to make an investment at the running back position, maybe top of second round, right? Where all those guys went last year. Do they start to make a move up if they're targeting one of those running backs to get into the back end of round one, get that fifth year of eligibility, could franchise in one year without it probably causing major issues with the player and right. have him for six years, have him yeah. from 20 to 26 or 21 to 27. You get six years out of him. You feel like you've gotten a solid investment out of him and then say, thank you very much. And you wonder if that's going to be where we're going with so many Cowboys regretting Ezekiel Elliott, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, Todd Gurley, mm-hmm. you know, are the Giants going to be put in this situation sooner rather than later with Saquon Barkley? And can he be the outlier compared to recent contracts and live up to that second year? You wonder if we're going to get to a point where teams are going to think about late round one is the time to invest in running back, have them under control five years and maybe one franchise year, ride them and then move on. This is, see, these are the discussions I'm here for, right? I mean, I, I, I wish I had time um family life and other things beckon where i can't dive into film the way i used to <laughs> 15 years ago but these kind of egghead uh academic discussions about the state of the nfl with respect to positions was really interesting because a couple of things i think uh that really back up what you're proposing one is downward pressure on the number for that fifth year option right as running backs are getting paid less on their second contracts now the denominator, whatever math, my math skills are, uh, you know, all my, all the terminology. The point is that top five salary or top ten salary, uh, the franchise tag number also, it's going to come down. It's going to keep coming down. The other thing you brought up that's really fascinating is yes, every team that is signing a running back to a second contract is regretting it. When was the last good second running back contract like Marshawn Lynch in Seattle? I guess, you know, Chris Carson, who is a good running back, who's a better than average starter in the NFL, got paid less than some of the mediocre marginal starters at other positions. This is the state of the running back position right now. Even Denver with their two year, $16 million deal to Melvin Gordon last year, which seemed like less, much less than Gordon was expecting. Remember, he held out. That even is a contract where I bet if the Broncos could do it over again, they're overpaying Gordon right now. Right, um, Aaron Jones got basically what two years, twenty million. Aaron Jones is one of the best ten or twelve running backs in the league. Two years, twenty million. Two years, twenty million. I mean, Melson Aguilar got more than that. You know, um, Dory Jackson got more per year than Aaron Jones. This is the state of the position. Now, the flip side of that discussion that I think is also interesting um, is that oh, just to add a punctuation mark. 
the Panthers were sniffing around Chris Carson when he was out there. They were one of the teams in on Chris Carson. Could they be pondering trading Christian McCaffrey because of his contract? Could they be one of the surprise teams in on a running back? There's always a few teams that take a running back high that were like, what? Who really? Just file that away. Because I think Carolina, you know, I don't want to say it's remorse, but I think they can see that the longer these, I mean, as you mentioned, when the day went past, like the fifth day of the league year or something like that, when Ezekiel Elliott's 2022 numbers got guaranteed, people paused and noticed it because that contract's looking bad. Not that that's a shock, but it's probably looking worse, especially with Tony Pollard playing well, than it did even the people that were negative on it when they signed it. Now, on the other hand, Paul, I would say, if because of the short shelf life of running backs, that's where you look at that fifth-year option as a, a more of a negotiating tool for the second contract and for kicking decisions down the road. But you're right that the I think Barkley is going to be a really interesting one. I guess as long as Dave Gettleman is there, they're obviously going to pick up the fifth-year option. But I think there's an argument to not pick up the fifth-year option. I think there's an argument to say, let's see how he plays. Let's see if he stays healthy, which he hasn't the last two years. And then if he earns it, then we'll sign him to you know a three-year, $40 million deal or something like that. And if he doesn't, then we're not saddled with that. I don't think the Giants are going to have the foresight to do that, but I think that it's because they're run by somebody who made the initial decision to draft him. Yeah, I think you're right. And we'll see, right? Because Christian McCaffrey, Derrick Henry, and probably the pending Saquon Barkley, right? Those are going to be the next three. What if they all go sideways? Right. Then Then you're talking about Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, and now three more. If right. they Le'Veon all go Bell. sideways, when yeah, Le'Veon Bell, when is when is the if they all go sideways, is any team going to be willing to pay no. a running back a second contract? Because you're talking these guys aren't average players; these are no. the best of the best at their position. I mean, right. Todd Gurley was on top of the running back world a few years ago, right? Christian McCaffrey's doing things that we haven't seen. Derrick Henry looks like a machine out there. So if these go sideways, you know it's gonna be it's gonna really open the door for what we think about these guys and you do wonder and it was funny that you mentioned that about carolina and i hadn't even heard about the chris carson little tidbit you do wonder some of these guys who are such good receivers is there ever going to be a team that thinks about a full-blown position switch like would carolina ever think you know what christian mccaffrey is not going to be worth it at the running back position and beat him down but maybe he can be an elite slot receiver for the next eight to ten years on a le- on a level of Wes Welker or, or pick your favorite slot receiver. I wonder if a team ever considers that with a player as ilk in terms of his pass catching ability as a Christian McCaffrey, just because of the the lifespan and longevity mm-hmm. of non running back positions. It's these conversations can go on forever. So I, I'll, I'll I'll wrap it up right there and. Let's spin this over to the unicorn of the draft. And, yeah. and that's the one tight end, the one tight end worthy of discussion. We'll hit on some more guys when you come back post draft. But but let's talk Kyle Pitts because he truly is a unicorn at the position, right? We've yes. seen some great tight ends and we've seen Vernon Davis and we've seen, you know, the OJ Howard, Evan Ingram year with David Njoku. And we had, you know, we've had other guys go high, right? You know, recently, but no one has had a draft pedigree coming in as Kyle Pitts. Like he truly is the minute he steps foot on the football field, he's immediately the most athletic tight end in the NFL, no matter who else is out there. How high is too high in terms of real football? And could you make the case 
with how rare and special it is to have an elite fantasy football tenant. And I know you. I've seen I've yeah. seen you when you've done drafts. I know you're big into getting Travis Kelsey at the right price early sure. in drafts and take that advantage that you get over to competition. Should there be legitimate conversation in one quarterback dynasty rookie drafts yes. that he should be the first pick? Yes, yes. That, that, that's where I'm going to have him. That's where I'm going to have him, number one. And there's a lot of different ways we could get, attack this question, okay? Um, but Kyle Pitts is the unicorn. I asked, that's exactly how I asked Matt Waldman yesterday. Is Kyle Pitts a unicorn? And he said, yes, he is. Yes, he is a unicorn. And I think uh, Chris Trapazzo, just uh, tremendous work over at CBS covering the draft, was on my show recently, and I asked him about Pitts. And he said the thing that people don't always include when they're talking about Pitts is that he's a very nuanced, skilled player. That he's not just, and this isn't to take his name in vain, he's not Noah Fant, okay? He's not this player that is just an athletic wonder that you can make some, or Jared Cook, you know, this athletic prototype. But when you see how he can take those gifts and bring them to bear on the field, well, sometimes it leaves you wanting more. Kyle Pitts is ready. Kyle Pitts is polished. And you outliers tilt fantasy leagues outliers are what makes the difference of when you win your league or not. And I don't know how much more the universe could be screaming at us that there's never been somebody like Kyle Pitts before. Even when we get to the conversation about what tight ends do in their rookie year in typical fantasy leagues, like a redraft league, that nobody's gone as high as Kyle Pitts. I get it. I know Vernon Davis went sixth. So maybe he'll go sixth or maybe he'll go seventh or eighth. But he's going to go... Remember also that if a play. Don't think about where Kyle Pitts goes. Think about where he goes compared to the quarterbacks. So if he's the first non-quarterback off the board. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Say, he might go six to eight, but we might have four quarterbacks ahead of him. So that exactly. really, in a normal year, he might have been the second or third exactly. pick. And exactly. There could have been some draft classes that he could have been in consideration for one. A tight end. Right, right, right. Exactly. And this is the kind of player that, look, no matter what the position is, when a player goes that high, they're instantly a foundational player for that team. Um, and then the other thing is, if we're just strictly talking about fantasy football and, and the curve, the advantage that you can lock in. I mean, look, Kyle Pitts, none other than Lance Zierlein. And Lance is not one to get carried away. I am one to get carried away. I'm one to get overexcited. That's one of the reasons I like doing this, getting overexcited. Lance Zierlein said that he compared him to Calvin Johnson, and he said that he could force teams in his division to rethink their roster. That's the kind of player that Kyle Pitts is. So, yeah, I mean, this is the kind... I like to say, Paul, that one of the neat things about fantasy football is it's a way to be in touch with or be part of a player's greatness. You know? It's a way to feel like you are a little part of that. And I think that whether it's in your rookie draft or it's in your redraft league... um, I think that ha- taking that ride with Kyle Pitts this year, and I don't care what team he lands on. I don't care if it's Atlanta. I don't care if it's Detroit. I don't care if it's Cincinnati. I don't care if it's Miami. I don't care if it's Carolina. Dallas, maybe even, you know, Jerry Jones supposedly loves him. It won't be Denver. I think we can rule Denver out, speaking of no fan. I don't care what team he lands on because he's the kind of player that creates his own gravitational field in terms of targets in terms of game plan he's going to mold his destiny 
It's not going to, whatever tight ends have done in their rookie year, how many targets they get, how their development curve is, everything is shouting at us. This guy's different. Yeah, I mean, it's so fascinating. And the, and the thoughts of where he could end up, right? Atlanta with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley with Joe Burrow, a, a young. And listen, the Bengals, if Atlanta goes quarterback, the Bengals are going to be staring at a really hard decision that I think. Yeah. I'm not envious of their decision because do you get the offensive lineman that you so desperately need to keep Joe Burrow upright? But do you take that offensive lineman at the expense of taking the guy that we just called a unicorn and such a rare outlier who could open up the middle of the field where Joe Burrow had the most success he had at LSU? So they're probably, if Atlanta goes quarterback or a team trades up in the first four picks or quarterbacks, they're going to have to choose between theoretically the franchise left tackle, which for decades and decades and decades has been valued more than a tight end at the NFL level, but they're going to have to choose that over a guy who is such a rarity in, in what Kyle Pitts can be. It's going to be really interesting. You brought up Carolina. I don't, I don't even see him getting to eight anymore. I am now convinced he's going four to six someone, whether it's a trade up, Mm -hmm. whether it's one of those three teams, I think he ends up going there. I think he warrants being the first pick taken in dynasty rookie drafts, because if you could tell anybody right now that they could have Travis Kelsey for the next six to 12 years, whatever you want to, whatever year you want to project, you know, that he can be great at. Is there anybody more valuable in fantasy football? I don't think so. None, no. you know, in terms of the edge you would get over your opponents. So the the Pitts conversation is fascinating. And like you said, it doesn't really matter where he goes. I don't think it really depends. I don't think he needs to go to coach. I think wherever he goes, he's, like you said, going to be a focal point and an integral part of that team's offense. It'll be exciting to see what Atlanta does. Maybe they don't have the defense to, to go far, but an offense with Matt Ryan still capable. Right. An offense with I don't know how you stop Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and and Pitts. I I, I really yeah. don't know how you would do that. Uh, so that you know obviously you know would open up a whole world of excitement if he ends up there. So let's let's do this to close out the night. Okay, we'll talk a lot of a lot of wide receivers when you come back post draft with landing spots. But l- let me just real quick pick your pick your brain in terms of the wide receivers. The big three: the two Alabama, mm-hmm. Devonta Smith, Jalen Waddle, and Jamar Chase. I know you're big in the value, the tactical value, right? A player can bring and how it can change an offense. And you just talked about coaches scheming to stop, you know, Terry Kill does that with Kansas City. Right. Some people think Jalen Waddell can do that. I personally right. think right. the closest thing we've had to Tyreek Hill. Every year yes. I feel like that gets thrown out, and every year I feel like it's not a good comparison. I always feel the people that are compared to Tyreek Hill are more Deshaun Jackson or more Will Fuller, you know, mm-hmm. Taylor Gabriel or whatever. I think Jalen Waddell legitimately could be Tyreek Hill 2.0 in some capacity. And I do wouldn't be stunned in three years, personally, if Jalen Waddell is the best of the trio. Yeah. I think they're all great. Where do you kind of stand on that trio in terms of your favorite or or how much separation do you see between these guys? And then is there one guy or two guys that are not in that big three that really that you're excited about the wide receiver position? And then we'll talk a lot more wide receivers yeah. post-draft. Yeah, I think you're right to point out Waddle as your, again, draft prop bets, right? I mean, he could be the first wide receiver off the board. Henry um, Ruggs last year. Exactly, and he's better than Ruggs. He's got more yeah. to offer than Ruggs. Yeah, he has more. Uh, that's not to knock rugs, and that's not to be a revisionist uh, historian. Um, I, I just think that Waddle at this point is a better prospect than Rugs was going into the draft. And of course, last year it was Rugs and Judy uh, and Lamb, and this year it's Chase and Smith 
and Waddle. So yeah, I think you're right that the playmaking ability, and this is where, as a Giants fan, when you start to do the simulations of the draft and you think, wow, Watt, there's some scenarios, lots of scenarios, where Waddle is still there at number 11. And I think that that's about his floor, which, by the way, the draft prop bet is 12 and a half. <laughs> so get in on that. Um, but it's the playmaking ability, and it's not just speed. You know, it's his ability to catch point. It's his ability as an open field runner. Um, Devontae Smith, I think, is – I would love Devontae Smith. Like, I mean, the name Marvin Harrison comes up, but it comes up for a reason, right? Like, imagine pairing him with a Peyton Manning type of quarterback, you know, pairing him with that kind of – I mean, look at what Tyler Boyd's doing with Joe Burrow. I mean – it's he's he's just going to get open at will in the short and intermediate areas. He's not necessarily a burner. There will be sometimes he might get like pinballed around or, or out physical because of his frame. But he's just going to he's going to make so many high percentage plays for an offense. And then you have Chase, who actually you know athletically there's nothing that he leaves on the off the table. Um, he's a really rugged player after the catch. He's got great uh, balance uh, after the catch. Uh, you've got contested catch skills, and I don't. I don't think it's cut and dry, Paul. Right? I mean, it's not cut and dry who wide receiver one is because it's what. What are you looking for? What kind of quarterback do you have? What kind of offense do you have? That's how close they are, and I think it's a pretty good drop off. Obviously, Rashad Bateman comes up, and he's totally different than the other two in the sense that he's more of that classic number one receiver. Maybe he's not going to take the top off of a defense. Maybe he's not going to make these awe-inspiring plays because he's not a physical wonder, but he does everything at the, on an optimal level, all the little things in the position. I put him, I've, I've put him on that somewhere in that Keenan Allen to Michael sure. Thomas mold. Yeah, right? because exactly. he, those guys don't win vertically down the field with acrobatic right. catches, and I think that's Rashad Bateman as well. Yeah, I think I think Bateman's there, and then you have then you have this plethora of slot guys that we'll talk yep. about post draft, right? The Elijah Moores and and the Tutu Atwells and these small school guys. You know, I know you followed the Steelers closely with Deontay Johnson. Keep mm-hmm. a close eye on Cade Johnson. Okay. Cade Johnson, I think, is the next guy like Deontay Johnson coming out of Toledo. I think he sneaks in. I think he goes day two. So I think he's a guy that we're going to be talking about by the second night of the draft. Kay Johnson uh, is a guy who I know at the Senior Bowl, basically uncoverable. He's a guy that really piques my interest. But final wide receiver question. If you're the Dolphins, and they had their choice, do you you basically almost ask Tua – do you have a? Do you almost almost let Tua make the pick if he wants one of his Alabama guys? Because the success of the Miami Dolphins moving forward hinges on them on hopefully Tua being the guy that they expect him to be. Do you use that connection and rapport that he has with those Alabama guys? That if your grades close enough with the, the wide receivers, do you maybe let him almost make that pick? Is it weird to, to think yeah. that you could actually go to your second-year quarterback and almost ask him to make that pick for you? It's not weird, but I think what's uh, another layer to this discussion, Paul, is well, let's ask the same thing about Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, right? Yeah. And um, Joe Goodberry, who always does excellent work, even though he's oh, phenomenal. covering the man. He's, Joe Goodberry's his man. He's the man. If you don't know who Joe, Good, Joe Goodberry is, take care of that. He said that the reports that Burrow is lobbying for Chase makes him think that Chase isn't the pick because why would he have to lobby? And, you know, maybe it's Sewell, maybe it's Pitts. Um, and I think 
the Bengals, we don't necessarily hold out as the most prudent organization, but there's a great argument to take Chase. Uh, and I think you're, but you're not looking at, and Burrow obviously is going to be the quarterback for the Bengals for the foreseeable future. With Tua, it's 2021 or bust. Yeah. So you, do you want to make a pick that you were going to be, I mean, look, when you take a player six overall and you trade back up, you gave up a first round pick a future first-round pick to make sure you were going to get this player instead of whoever was available at 12, then it should be based on your organization, your organizational clarity, decisions uh, inside the organization about how do we win, what do we value, what do we think is the missing piece, and so on. So no, I don't think that. And I think that this opens up another whole Pandora's box too because you have players saying they preferred like the teammates, Mac Jones to Tua. Um, I think the one thing that you're right to isolate here is the team is all in on Tua this year yes this year but I think they have they have more than have the draft capital to go back to the drawing board if it doesn't work out so I think with that in mind um and also you just think like what does Tua what does Tua need I think that Will Fuller signing is pretty responsive and hopefully George Godsey and Eric Studisville create an offense that is more tailored to Tua and more downfield passing uh, than what we've seen last year. So there's a, there, there's just too many variables here to make a pick based on the preference of a quarterback that might not be your quarterback in two years. Uh, and that's why I think we'll all be on the edge of our seats. Again, I, I just think keep that name, Jalen Waddle, back of your mind. When the Dolphins are on the clock, even though people will say, well, it's, it's, it's going to clear. Oh, well, Chase is still on the board, but they like Smith. Waddle is the name that I think isn't being mentioned enough there. And then if Waddle goes six again, Paul, that's you know, what, who gets pushed down to the Giants. Now is it Slater? You know, is it Parsons? Um, every pick will barely have enough time to understand the implications of that pick for the future picks. While we're also trying to understand what's going on in the draft with the players that get married to the teams, which is why I'm so happy that you'll be joining me again uh, on draft night, reacting in real time as you did when Daniel Jones was taken and uh, for some part of the first round we'll get to pick each other's brains while this is happening yeah for sure always always one of my favorite things to do every year have the pleasure to join you and Matt Waldman on your draft show on the first night of the NFL draft and you make some great arguments there and you know it, it, it really does we're not sure that they're all in and let's be honest if if everything that's going on surrounding Deshaun Watson wasn't going on right now we right. don't even know if Tua would have been the quarterback yeah. this year because right. I still say that I think that was the one team that if there was going to be a bold move, they had a plethora of picks, some of them from the Texans, right, already, right. you know, from the Laramie Tunsil trade. But if if there was ever going to be that trade this offseason, if things were different than what they currently are, I always thought Miami made the sense, right, because they could have sold somewhat to the, 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 the Texans fan base. Here's Tua. Here's three first round picks, you're getting back at least some value, right? I always thought that made sense. And I, I, I think they only even consider that, right? If they're not all in, right? Because I don't think the Bengals as good as Deshaun Watson is, right? You wouldn't hear, you never heard the Bengals thinking about trading Joe Burrow in first round picks, right? To right. go get Deshaun Watson or somebody like that. So I understand them not taking a quarterback in this draft, like judging Tua compared to Trey Lance or Mac Jones or Justin Fields. I'd understand them not saying we're not ready to move on. Even the fact that they were contemplating making a run at Deshaun Watson, 
leaves open the scrutiny that you just talked about, that he might not be there for the long haul, right? And they mm-hmm. kept going back to Ryan Fitzpatrick last year. They didn't want to do that, but they almost felt obligated to go to Tua because they wanted to see what he was. But at the same time, they knew Ryan Fitzpatrick gave them a better chance to to win each week. That was for sure, right? So it, it's so such a dynamic there with the Dolphins in terms of what they do there. So Sig... As always, an absolute pleasure uh, to have you on the show. I'm pretty certain most of my audience knows where to follow you, but please let them know where to follow you, what you're working on. You just mentioned the draft night. As always, anything else you want to plug or let the audience know about? Yeah, just we're, th- we're there for you at football, guys. I mean, just this is our depth of water. We just like obsessing about these things. There's no boring part of the NFL calendar. There's no way that a conversation with Matt and Paul could ever be boring uh, about this because of the way that we approach it and the way that we find meaning in all of these things that unfold. So I'm happy to be part of this show and be part of this great group of people we have to share this experience of following the NFL. Absolutely, guys. Make sure you're following Sig. Make sure you're listening to the podcast, checking out all their great work at Football Guys as well. So on behalf of Sig, on behalf of our sound tech engineer, David Nakano, and myself. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday.